Our next retreat is finally here. It's called Adventures in Energetics, and it's happening November 8th to the 14th, 2024 in Boquete, Panama. This seven-day, six-night retreat in the beautiful cloud forest of Panama is going to be a unique experience. This program is a not-for-beginners retreat. And what I mean by that is you will actually have to fill out an application before you will be accepted to be able to register for the program because we are going to be doing more advanced level energetics and I need to make sure that everybody who comes is actually ready for the work. We will be doing a Kundalini awakening. We will be doing group visioning process called a spiritual canoe. We will be doing daily presence practices and working on expanding our energy. We will be doing daily rituals. This process will be related to specifically the people who are there because in addition to filling out the questionnaire about what your experience is, you're also gonna ask for what it is that you'd like to learn. So part of the curriculum for this is set and part of it will be designed around the desires of the participants. I only have 20 beds available for this retreat, so it will fill up quickly. So this is the time to register. Do not wait. To find out more, go to kellysparta.com forward slash retreat. I look forward to seeing you there. Another blood red sunset and yet another moon face and still another hundred miles to my next resting place. Driving down the road, eyes on the horizon, within my car I'm all Feeling good and feeling strong Knowing that this path I'm on brings me to myself I'm driving Hey y'all, I'm Jules. Welcome back to another episode of Spirit Sherpa, the show that helps and encourages you on your journey to unlock your magic mojo. With me as always is the spirit doctor, Kelly Sparta. Hey Kelly, what's up? Hey Jules. I don't know. Same shit, different day, man. Another day in paradise. (laughs) Is it raining again over there in paradise? Uh, Well, it has been all afternoon, but it seems to have stopped. But, you know, we had the the humidity in the house down to 58 earlier today. And I turned it off because I was like, oh, that's good enough. And then I was like, why am I so warm? I'm so warm. I'm so warm. And all the windows are closed. But why am I warm? I turned the thing on again. It was at 78% humidity again, even though everything's closed up. So I've got it running in the background. <laughs> so one of the things that would be Panama, why that makes a difference. Yep. The humidity is is a constant battle. You know, there's mold and humidity. And yeah, so it's been a process to learn how to be, be with it. But, you know, everything else is so awesome. I don't care. Yeah, I've been I've been uh, I'm not on TikTok, but I see your Instagram videos and like y'all went out for, I think, tapas the other night. Yes. See, this is the thing. you got to really actually be on TikTok because uh, the the tapas thing was like three minutes long and Instagram only puts out 90 seconds and that's what gets published to Facebook. So if you're wondering why my videos are getting cut off in your social feed, it's because we're doing you know, uh, a longer form video and they don't allow that. So come over to TikTok, search for me. You will find me. It's awesome. <laughs> bring the tapas, bring the party, bring the music. Cause you also posted one of dancing. Oh yes. Well, and the Kawadi Mundi's that, that almost stole my phone. Right. Did you see that one? 
the Quadimundis. It's it's like a a, a weird um, raccoon that oh like yes a cross I did them. yeah yeah and they they tried to steal my phone so because I was recording them I'm like oh aren't you cute and they came up and grabbed my phone I'm like okay I'm an idiot I'm interacting with wildlife that I don't know if it's dangerous or not and letting it walk right up to my phone because I want to get a good shot because I'm stupid I am the stupid white girl yes okay <laughs> I remember <laughs> that <laughs> well, because I started dying laughing. I wasn't even thinking. I was showing my husband the video, and I'm like, look at this. He's like, why is she so close? Tell her to back up. Tell her to back up. They're wild animals. Those are not pets. So he is fussing at you through the phone like you can hear him, <laughs> and we're killing ourselves laughing. I'm like, this is, this is, this is what we do. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it's all good and it's all fun. But, you know, enough about us. We have a wonderful guest today that we're excited to talk about. And I don't want to waste a lot of time just sort of shooting the shit here. So I, I want I'm, I'm, to I'm excited. You and I were talking earlier today and, and Jewel was all like, she's like, oh, I'm excited about this one. And she actually went and downloaded the book and started reading it and was all excited to talk. So um, Jewel's probably going to be doing most of the interviewing because she's got a lot of questions. So. <laughs> But we're going to talk to Delphi Ellis. And uh, Delphi is the author of the book, Answers in the Dark, Grief, Sleep, and How Dreams Can Help You Heal. Her book joins the, the dots together between our sleep, dreams, and mental health, particularly how grief shows up even if no one has died. It explores the three big myths of sleep and offers a sleep cycle repair kit, which I'm sure everybody's going to be excited about. We're going to talk about that. Uh, and the uh, her background is as a qualified counselor, and she works mainly in the community, helping people going through a difficult time, as she calls it, to find their mojo and get their sparkle back. Hmm, mojo. We're all excited about the mojo here. And uh, she's in the UK, and she's appeared on several TV and radio shows talking about dreams. So, Delphi Ellis, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's so good to be here and and uh, be joining you this evening. It's it's wonderful to be here. So, uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Tell us a little bit about how. First off, how did you end up writing this book? Why was this the topic that you picked? So it's it's a really interesting story in the sense that the book itself actually took me 10 years to write. And it, it's I think it surprises people to know that because um, in terms of the content, the book itself goes into, you know, quite a lot of detail about the things you mentioned. So about dreams and grief and, and sleep um, and how that kind of impacts our mental health. But when I first started writing the book about 10 years ago, I had this almost like idea that I needed to make sure that it ticked certain boxes. So I was very caught up in the original uh, version of the book in getting this um, the science included and, and talking about the sciencey aspect of it and stuff like that. And then one day, um, a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I was talking with some ladies that I support in the community I do a lot of work helping people who are escaping domestic abuse and I was talking to some ladies and one of them turned around to me I was talking about sleep and dreams and, and those kinds of things and she said you need to write a book 
not realizing that I was already trying to write one and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and she said to me, the way you talk is the way you should write. So instead of me getting caught up in the jargon, which is what I had been getting caught up in up until a few years ago, um, she said, you need to talk about it. Like you need to write about it. Like you talk about it. And, and so that's pretty much what I did. I literally sat down with the manuscript again and I, I just started as if I'm having a conversation with someone. So and lots of people have said that when they've read the book, they said it's, it's like you're in the room. It's like you're talking to me. And and that was deliberate. So it's, it's very much instead of me kind of going down the jargon element, I still included the science, but it's it's more written about it in ways that I think a lot of people will understand rather than coming at it from this sort of academic jargony, you know, uh, too intense way of, of speaking about it. So but my my background is I mean, I grew up in a house which certainly in the UK was very unique because I, um, you know, I used to come home from school and my mum would be reading the tarot. Um, I remember coming home from school one day, my mum was using a Ouija board. Uh, I remember, I can still hear to this day, I can still hear my mum using the I Ching. She used to use the Chinese divination tool, the coins, you know, and, and she would she would do those before she went to bed at night. And I can still hear that. I can still hear the clink of the coins. And so this is not your average kind of British household. Um, but what we also used to do around the breakfast table, we used to talk about the dreams we were having. So I would get up in the morning and my mum would say, what, what did you dream about last night? And this was normal for me. And that's what I grew up with. It was only when I went to school and I remember going into the playground one day and, and being really excited to tell people about this dream that I'd had. And people looking at me as if to say, what the hell are you talking about? You know, almost kind of weirdo, you know, this this real kind of weirdo element to it and and so um and that's when I realized that the life I was living was quite unique we had a statue of Aphrodite in our front room we had a black cat you know everything that you would put in the more traditional you know uh kind of talking about magic mojo you know talking about it from that perspective um so that was that was me growing up and and so it, it came very naturally to me when I started working with people therapeutically uh, and, and my background is in bereavement. So when I started working with people in bereavement, it came very naturally to me to ask them about their dreams and, and you know, and about the, the sleep that they were having so or not having, as the case may be. So, so yeah, that's pretty much where it, it kind of took me. The book itself took a very long time to write, but more because I just needed to find my style. I needed to find my way of writing it. Yeah, you know, what's really funny is that when I first started writing what was to be my first book, which actually is what ended up being my programs. Um, I got stuck in the same thing. I wrote, I wrote it. I started it over and over and over again. And I finally, I was like, I, I keep ending up sounding strident and, and bitchy. And I was like, why, why I can't get this to work. And I called a friend of mine up and I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And she said, don't write a book, write a booklet. She's like, just write a booklet. 
She's like, don't, you're taking yourself too seriously. Just write a booklet, treat it like it's a, a, a workshop booklet. And I was like, oh, okay. And I wrote 45 pages in three days because I just took all of the pressure off of myself. So I, I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> I get it. Um, and I, I have to say as well, I think for me, I think I remember just before I handed in the manuscript, I remember reading the manuscript myself and, and I did the thing which I think probably some people would do. I sent it to my mum and um, I, I kind of moved into this space in my head where I thought, well, if my mum likes it, it really doesn't matter, you know, what anyone else thinks. And so I remember getting her feedback from it and um and and just thinking well you know what i i like it my mum likes it then you know it, it it ticks the box so so yeah but i mean having said that my i did keep in my mind the whole time i did keep in mind the people that i've worked with when i was writing it as well so um on a serious note i i did keep in them in my mind because i thought if i can help them then then it's it's achieved what it what it meant to what it was meant to achieve yeah so What's what's great about having been raised talking about dreams is that you had the benefit of learning the language of symbology very early in life. And as someone who has spent time teaching people the language of symbology, it's a tough language to grasp if you don't like think in that way. And so um, th- you know, that's just such a gift that you were born into that uh, environment. Uh, my mother was a very similar setup too, where, you know, we were doing the, the new age stuff. So you and I have a lot in common, which would explain the magic mojo thing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm just crashing the party as the newbie because I grew up with a Catholic mom. So yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> My mom actually, my mom actually went to a convent school. So I think that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My mom actually went to a convent school. There's a very famous story about her. She was caught um, trying to escape, uh, trying to go over the wall. So it's very famous. There's another story. But yeah. And, and really, I think that was probably a turning point in her own journey. So that's, um, that's fine. So yeah. Okay. So going to elementary school, I was taught by nuns. See, there we go. We have a convent right down the street from my school. So see, we're right there. And my very, yep. And my very Catholic mom now just loves her crystals. She keeps them right next to, nice next to her, you know, uh, statue of St. Joseph and uh, Mary and her rosary. They, everybody plays nicely together. So that was awesome. (laughs) In your book, you talk about working things out in your dreams and um, let me see. One of them was like, uh, let's see. Oh, the 4 a.m. mystery. And always you know, for those of us who don't get, you know, regular eight hours of sleep, you know, waking up. Um, I know my husband, he usually sleeps about four or five hours and that's straight and that's it. And then he's waking up all hours of the night. I'm usually up somewhere between three and four in the morning, and then I go back to sleep. And then I find that I dream much more vividly when I go back to sleep. 
Yeah, that's that's a thing. And and the, so in the in Answers in the Dark, there's a whole chapter called the 4am mystery. And it's actually loosely based on a poem um, that was written by a character called Reeves. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. It's spelled R-I-V-E-S. And, and he has this um, poem which he dedicates to the 4am mystery where he talks about the fact that some people see that as inconvenient. You know, some people see that as the, the wrong time to be waking up in the night. But he also then goes on to say, but actually, this is when um, writers and painters and all types of creatives have potentially come up with their best work. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking as I'm saying this, uh, and I think I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this in the book, is that um, the riff to I Can't Get No Satisfaction by uh, the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards actually dreamt that and then woke up and played it into his, uh, with his guitar and tape recorder that he had by his bed. So this is an example of how some people have had their biggest, most creative discoveries is in the early hours of the morning. And, and so I kind of go on to expand about that, that, that actually rather than seeing 4am as this really annoying, frustrating, uh, difficult time to be awake, we could actually use it as something that could be seen as, you know, almost like a template for us doing something creative or, or writing or reading or, or doing something like that. The other thing, though, is to mention is that, and this is one of the big myths that I talk about in Answers in the Dark, is that we've kind of fallen into this trap, certainly in the West, we've kind of fallen into this trap of thinking that it's unnatural to wake up at night. And yet, actually, we are designed to have what we call polyphasic sleep. So to some extent, we are designed to wake up periodically, just apart from anything else, just to check everyone's okay and everything's okay in the house. I describe it in the book as a sentinel reflex. So it's almost like we have this internal bodyguard that wakes up and says, is everything okay? Yep, everything's cool. But it's what we do next that's going to make the difference between whether we fall back to sleep or not. So if I wake up in the middle of the night and say, why am I awake? What's wrong with me? I'm going to feel dreadful in the morning. I'm going to have an awful day tomorrow because I can't sleep. Then I'm going to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get back to sleep. Whereas if I wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, this is normal. This is just my brain checking in that everyone's OK. Everything's OK. Then uh, you will probably find that you fall back to sleep more easily. So I think there's two sides to it there's there's this myth that we shouldn't be waking up we know that's that's not the case it's normal for us to wake up but there's also the possibility that darkness brings and that actually we could make some of our greatest discoveries you know in the middle of the night and one of the things I talk about in answers in the dark is famous people throughout history who have used for example their dreams to influence their work. So Vincent van Gogh said, I dream my painting and then I paint my dream. Um, Stephanie Mayer, who wrote the Twilight Saga, she dreamt that from start to finish in one, in one night. So the story goes. So, and, and it was interesting, you were talking about symbolism as well and symbology. When Stephanie Mayer woke up having just had this epic dream about vampires and werewolves she didn't wake up and think right okay what's the symbolic reference of a wolf what's the symbolic reference of a vampire what is that dream trying to tell me about my psyche or my personality or my life at this time she literally knew she'd been given a book 
So she took that and then she used the bones of the dream to to write what was the, what then became five of probably the most famous books that we've seen in the last you know two decades. So um, so yeah, I think this is this is the thing. I think we we kind of need to make friends with the dark. I think we need to learn how to befriend the dark. From a spiritual perspective, the uh, three a.m. is known as the witching hour. It's the time when the veil is thinnest between the worlds in, you know, in in a day-to-day basis, right? And then, of course, you know, the closer we get to the, uh, you know, to to Samhain and Beltane, the, you know, the more we get even closer, the thinner the veil becomes. And so in like early May and in late October, things get even more, the veil becomes even more wispy. And so, you know, the idea that, that things are being downloaded to us is really not that far-fetched from, from a uh, spiritual perspective. No, and also, I mean, what you were saying about how if you fall back to sleep, your dreams are then more vivid. I mean, you know, there's science in that. You know, the fact is when we first go to sleep at night, we're only dreaming for about five minutes. By the end of the night, we could be dreaming up to 30 to 45 minutes. So it makes sense that the dream you have just before you wake up in the morning is one of the most vivid, the most clear, the most intense that you're going to have. Um, but you're right, you know, and again, this is one of the things I, I mentioned this as well, is that I think certainly in the West, we've we've fallen into the trap of when we talk about dreams, for example, we've fallen into the trap of referencing a guy with a beard who lived about 100 years ago by the name of Sigmund Freud. And so we kind of have boxed our dreams into, well, what did Freud think or what did Carl Jung think, when actually the, the subject of dreams has been talked about for thousands of years. You know, we've been we've been understanding and analysing and interpreting dreams. The fact that, that, you know, there's several references to dreams in the Bible and even in, you know, texts before that. So to some extent, um, you know, the idea that, uh, dreams fall into the new age category, inverted commas. That's always made me chuckle because, you know, these are things that we've been talking about for, for hundreds of years and thousands of years. And also, of course, we, we know that in the East, dreams are just as important as they are in the West. We know that in different tribes and different traditions, you know, Aborigine, Maori traditions um, and in other cultures around the world, dreams still have special significance. So, again, it's it's falling into that trap, isn't it, of thinking, well, you know, what, what would Freud say when actually what do we know from our own culture and our own tradition about dreams themselves? Well, and, and not only that, but, uh, you know, what would Freud or Jung say you're you're right it's a hundred years ago the symbologies change and morph with culture and they change and morph with where you are in the world based on culture right so you know and and each person has their own symbology that is inherent to them based on their own experiential processes and so you know to i i've never been a big fan of you know go back and look at freud or young for that reason because symbology much like any other language is a living thing and it it changes over time and it it, it is a function of the space in which it is being used and so it's it's not really going to be useful to look at something from a hundred years ago. I mean, sure, it can serve as a baseline understanding and some things don't change, right? But a lot of things do. So (laughs) yeah, so I'm with you. 
I'm so glad you said that. And I, I, I specifically make reference to that in the book in the context that um, you're right, you know, symbols in their own right, they change over time. So, you know, 200 years ago, it's unlikely that somebody would have dreamt about a mobile phone unless they were dreaming about the future. Um, but it's quite possible that we would dream about, you know, if I was trying to make a phone call in my dream now, there's a good chance that I might be trying to use my mobile phone to do that. And so, you know, the references of that. At the same time, there's also symbols, which, and certainly in all the years I've been doing this, there are symbols that have remained constant. So teeth falling out, for example, is, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a symbol as old as time. And, and what's interesting about that is that, again, the interpretation of that will be relevant to the cultures and the beliefs and, and the traditions from whether or not you had a tooth fairy growing up, you know, and you used to give your teeth away for money. That will depend on the interpretation, whereas someone who comes from a culture where they wear, you know, teeth as necklaces or they have uh, a specific association with teeth referencing bone, you know, that's going to be about the body. So it's, it's all contextual. And, and that's why I was so pleased what you were saying about it's all contextual. We each have within us our own personal dream dictionary. And that's one of the reasons why I make the point that Answers in the Dark is not a dream dictionary. It's it's a reference guide. It's a, it's a, a kit. It's a, a way of kind of approaching these topics. But ultimately, the best person to decide what their dream means is the person who had it. Yeah. So now I know before we started our episode, uh, Jewel was asking about dreams about death. So you want to talk about the dream that you're having and and how how that's impacting? Yeah. So I, it's a couple of different versions, and it's always uh, one version was actually um, walking up a staircase to somewhere, and it's like it was like knowledge based because somebody was leading me there and I got to the top of the stairs and I couldn't open the door because they're like, nope, you're not there yet. The future hasn't been written. So then I saw see a door off off to my left and it's like a, like a surgery door. And I'm like, well, what's in here? And I just bust in it and someone's having surgery um, and they actually lose their life on the table. And so what I was told was, I was like, well, how did this happen? And they said, well, you weren't there and it was their time. And I said, well, if I can't be there for them at that actual moment that happened, I'll be there for them now. And so I just remember just holding their hand, you know, while, you know, they were basically taking their last breath. So I've gone from having that type of dream to actually my own death, (laughs) a couple of different variations, you know. And so I'm like, Okay, you know, and with me um, still learning and and growing on my journey and, you know, I just started really tapping into all this stuff a few years ago, um, you know, with Kelly. And so I'm, I'm still learning the interpretations and how to interpret that symbology for me. So what kind of advice do you have for that? And uh, like for me and then for just uh, death dreams, because I know this can be scary for a lot of people. Absolutely. And a lot of the reasons for the fear behind death dreams is because people worry that they're predictive. So they worry that the dreams about death means that they're going to come true. And so that's that's why people worry about it. I would say when I talk about other people's dreams, it's more an exploration for me. So rather than me saying it means this, I'm very much along the lines of, well, what do you think and and how would you interpret it? And, And so that would be one part of the conversation. 
But another thing to think about is that for a lot of people, and I, I do expand on this in Answers in the Dark, is about that death in dreams is actually rarely about death in the same way as sex in dreams is rarely about sex. So something like only 4% of sex dreams are actually about sex. Um, the majority, yeah, the majority of sex dreams are more about control, power and connection. So if, for example, I'm just going off at a tangent for a minute, but say, for example, I no, had... No, I have... I, it, it totally hits because I have those dreams too. And I'm like, <laughs> why was I dreaming this? I'm, so, I'm having sex in the middle of a donut shop. I don't understand this. Right. <laughs> so so this is, this is one of the reasons I mentioned this in Answers in the Dark is that sex in dreams is rarely about sex. It's often about control or connection. So say, for example, um, I was to dream about having sex with a boss that I used to work with, you know, at the time. And what's really interesting also in these dreams is how you feel during the dream compared to how you feel when you wake up. So let's say I was I was having sex in my dream with my my old boss, um, who I would never have sex with in real life. Um, but in the dream, I was loving it. And then when I woke up, I was mortified, right? Because this is not something I would do. So those matter because that can give you an indication about whether or not it's about control or connection. So let's say that particular boss, and I'm using a mythical boss at this point, by the way, I'm not just in case any old bosses of mine are listening to this podcast. I'm not, dream I'm not dreaming about that. Um, but just to mention that if, say, for example, in that dream, I'm loving it. If, say, for example, during my waking life, my boss is actually very controlling, he's very demanding of me. If in my dream, I am in charge and I am controlling what's happening in the dream, then that might be about balancing the status quo. It might be because I'm actually thinking, I really need to kind of control this situation. I really need to try and get this person to hear me, to understand me, to appreciate me, to, you know, those kinds of things. On the other hand, it could be about connection. You know, it doesn't have to be from an intimate perspective. It could be actually, you know what, I really like that person. I've got a lot of time for them. I feel like we're connected in some way. I think we gel together, you know, but that does not mean that there's any intimacy or any want for intimacy or, or anything like that. And that's where Freud would have had a field day. You know, Freud would have had an absolute field day with this type of dream. But actually, the reality is that it's probably not what you think it is. And exactly the same with death dreams. Death dreams are often about change rather than about death itself. That's not to say that, you know, if, if you've got a poorly relative and you dream that they die, that might be a, a subconscious conscious fear of that it might be something like that coming to the surface but say for example very common dream that a lot of mums have is that their children pass away you know mums often especially between the ages of about two and three and again between the ages of about six to nine and then again in their teenage years and when you think about it at all of those different stages in their lives, that child is becoming more independent. Between the age of two and three, they might be starting to show their own ideas around fashion, what they want to wear. Around the ages of six to nine, they might start answering back. They're starting to show a bit more sass. You know, they're, they're being a bit more sassy or salty in their interactions with people. And certainly in their teenage years, we might feel completely estranged from them. You know, we might not even recognize their likes, their wants and who they are. And so it 
it makes sense from a metaphorical perspective, it makes sense that we dream about them dying because we might not feel like we know them anymore or we don't recognise them anymore. So from that perspective, death in dreams is often about maybe looking at and almost like using those metaphors as what is changing for me right now? What am I seeing in terms of change? How is change affecting me right now? Am I seeing changes of the old me and the new me? So if when we dream about our own death, for example, that might be the old you and a new you is is coming through in terms of your knowledge and the wisdom that you're gaining on this path. In the same way, the dream that you described of, you know, the holding a person's hand whilst they died, that might also be bringing into an awareness your own ideas about death and and what, you, you know, what you think about it and how you feel about it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's about the death of a person. It could be symbolically about or even metaphorically, you know, how do I feel about death? And and would I want that for myself or for other people if if that was the case? But one thing that I would say in all of this is about keeping a dream diary because if you don't already keeping a dream diary can be so helpful in helping you understand patterns in your own dreams so you might find you have that dream where which by the way was beautiful symbolism when you were talking about going up the stairs we often talk about going up the stairs to knowledge and wisdom and and you know kind of um that enlightenment you know is at the top of that that whole kind of picture um so that made total sense when you were talking about going up the stairs and wisdom and all that um but then you went off at a tangent you know you went off in another direction because you couldn't go where you wanted to go so you took a different direction um and someone died in in that arena and that might be because it's saying no that's not the direction for you yet you know that's that's not where you want to go but it also might be as I say if you keep a dream diary you might start to be able to make connections between why you have those dreams when you do so if you've been talking about death during the day you might have that dream at night if it's the anniversary of the death of a loved one coming up you might have that dream at night if there was someone in your circle who you wished you'd been there for or you would want to be there for but you'd seen them that day or spoken about them that day, you might have that dream at night. So this is why keeping a dream diary can be so important, um, especially around the death of loved ones, because you will start to see patterns in your dreaming, especially around the anniversaries of, you know, their birthdays, deaths and so on. Well, and I, I would add to that, um, and, and I say hell, hell yes to everything you just said, um, and I would add to it um, that I happen to know that Jewel is going through a massive up-leveling and, and shamanic death is part of a massive up-leveling. And so when you told me, the, the when you were talking about the dream of, of seeing the person dying on the table and that you weren't there for them before, but that you can be there for them now, to me, that was your old self. When I was looking at that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly, you know, and given, you know, what what we talked about earlier today on on your coaching call, that makes sense because you're having that reflected by somebody else in your workplace right now. Right. And so that former you. I never put that together. together. Yeah. (laughs) And so that's that's what's bringing that together. Right. So that makes sense um, from that perspective. And it could be something totally different. I'm just giving you what, what my interpretation is. It, it, and honestly, it really doesn't matter what I think. It matters what you think because it's your dream. Right. 
So uh, I'm just giving options so that we we see different possibilities, right? It's it's all about giving people ideas about how to get their own ideas, right? So we're we're running out of time, but I do want to talk about one more piece, which is uh, your your book talks about grief. And you come out of bereavement. So, and you say it doesn't usually, it doesn't always come from somebody actually dying. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I've actually been doing some work with people on this and it's such an important topic. Yeah. And, and for me, this is really where COVID really taught us something is that death doesn't, grief doesn't just belong to death. It belongs to anything that matters to us that's no longer there. And I think one of the things I talk about in Answers in the Dark is I talk about disenfranchised grief and disenfranchised grief for those that don't know is where society doesn't allow us to grieve for certain things. So when a pet dies, we might be met with, but it was just an animal or if, uh, you know, a baby dies, people will say things like, well, at least it, you know, you, you can have more children. You know, they say sometimes that people come out with these really unhelpful things, very dismissive, very minimizing. And and it's, it's called disenfranchised grief because it's society's way of saying, I don't want you to grieve for that. You have no right to grieve for that. And it shows up and it showed up particularly during the pandemic where in the very early days of the pandemic, and I, and I don't know about you if you heard this, but I was certainly hearing of relationships breaking down left, right and centre in the early days of the pandemic. And because people were stuck at home with people that they just realised they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives with. And, and so I think I think this has really kind of brought it home to people. And yet that loss of a relationship, even though that person hasn't died, the loss of the relationship is as valid in grief as it is if they had died. And in the same way, it's, um, you know, being made redundant, you know, a person who's spent their whole life working for a certain company or in a statutory service, and then they're made redundant or they retire, they will feel probably a sense of loss for that, but without anybody dying. And society doesn't always get that. Society doesn't always understand that. And that's why it's called disenfranchised grief, because it's it's basically society saying, no, you don't have the right to grieve for that. And yet they do. And so this is what I talk about in Answers in the Dark, is about giving people permission to grieve for all their losses. And if you were to go back you know, over your whole lifetime. Um, and I don't recommend people do this unless they've got support and, you know, they feel that, that it's something that's worth doing. But for some people, they will go back through their lifetime and actually look at the number of losses that they've accumulated over time. If we count all of those things, parents getting divorced when they were younger and having to live out of two separate homes, uh, having to move schools when you were younger because your parents got divorced and leaving all your friends behind, a pet dying when you were little, uh, being made redundant when you were older, uh, you know, having a miscarriage, you know, all the different types of loss that you can experience in life. If we weren't given permission to grieve for all those things, they do build up, they accumulate. And they will find ways of showing themselves in other ways. And often it will show up in our dreams. And so that's why what we're not dealing with during the day will often show up at night. And, and so that's one of the reasons why, A, people don't often sleep that well because they're carrying with them, you know, this burden of heavy grief that they've carried their whole lives for things they weren't given permission to grieve for. But they're also... Um, trying to navigate life now with everything else that's going on in the world and and so trying to keep busy and I mentioned in the book there's a beautiful quote it says you know that we walk around it during the day but we fall into it at night 
Um, and so, of course, that's that's what happens. And so, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I come from it in the book is is very much that grief doesn't just belong to death. It's anything that mattered to you that's no longer there. Yeah, I, I do a lot of work with my clients in particular around um, because most of my people, they had to grow up very early and they didn't get the mothering and the loving and the caring that they wanted as children. And there's a point at which you have to step into your own inner adult and you have to acknowledge that that's never coming, that, that the parenting that you always wanted is never coming. And that, you know, the best you can do is to do it for yourself and that there's a lot of grief around that. And, you know, so that's a, another piece of the puzzle that most people don't don't realize. And, you know, if you're if you're not receiving love on a regular basis, then then every when you finally start to receive love, all the grief that you felt every time you didn't feel loved will start leaking out in the form of tears every time you let love in. And so there's there's that piece. And then I remember when I got divorced, it was my idea to get divorced, but I still grieved the loss of the dream of the life that we were going to build together, right? And so there's there's a grieving process that happens there, even if it's your idea, even if you're happy about it, even if you're you're moving forward positively, there was still the dream that you held, right? And so, you know, all of these things are, are reasons why grief shows up as part of our process. And it's such an important thing to acknowledge because especially in... Western culture, <laughs> especially in the US in particular, we have this thing about death. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about, you know, no, no, no. We don't talk about loss. We don't do it. No, no, no. Don't talk about it. And it's so unhealthy. It is so unhealthy because death is a part of life. Nobody gets out of this life alive. You just don't. Everyone's going to die. You got to look at it. And so it's so important. And so I'm so grateful that you put that into the book. I think it's such a wonderful thing to be talking about and so needed in our culture. So tell our listeners, how do they find your book and how do they get a copy? How do they find you? Uh, so Answers in the Dark has its own website. So they can just go to answersinthedark.com and that gives them all the different buying options. So they can get it from Amazon or they can get it from their preferred uh, seller if they want to do it that way. If people want to find me, they can go to my website, which is delphiellis.com. Awesome. And we will include those links in the show notes. So if you didn't get that, you will find them there. So um, final wrap up thought for the day before Jewel has a chance to ask me. Um, let's see. Um, your dreams are talking to you, whether you want to hear it or not. So you might as well listen. <laughs> there's your there's your wrap up. <laughs> I love it. That is, that is my, that is our Kellyism for the day. I love it. Ties everything together. Well, that's all that we have for this week, folks. Tune in next time when Kelly adds another chapter into your guide to energy, magic, and the spirit world. I'm Jules, here with Kelly Sparta and Delphi Ellis, and you have been listening to Spirit Sherpa. So long, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. On the horizon Within my car I'm all alone But feeling good And feeling strong Knowing that
myself I'm driving Wondering where my spirit will I'm driving Are you waking up to the spiritual world and realizing that you have no idea what you're doing but you feel like you kind of probably should especially since you seem to be seeing things and feeling things and having things see you that maybe aren't so great and that you might want to actually control your experience of that. Well, I have great news for you because our Welcome to the Woo program does just that for you. It teaches you how to hold your energy field, manage your energy field, clear your energy field, protect your energy field, and learn how to protect your space. And you learn how to do basic divination and talk to your guides so that you feel like you actually have a clue and have a way to talk to the guides that will help you to figure everything else out. And it teaches you how to make sure that you feel mentally, emotionally, and energetically safe. That means that we also deal with things like fear and anxiety and worry and dread and self-doubt and inner and outer judgments. And we help you build a foundation of self-support and courage. All of these things together create a solid sense of safety in your own life. They will reduce your stress levels in half guaranteed. So visit the website at kellysparta.com and find out more about the Welcome to the Woo program. Your future awaits.